0: In her Todesarten novels, Ingeborg Bachmann reflected on the Nazi past in the German language. She saw the malignant interject pushing all the gender buttons that keep woman in last place. Elfriede Jelinek sets a place at the table of man for woman's fading and non-existence. That in the phallic order of the eye... Woman doesn't exist means that if you are woman and pursue a career like authorship, you must forgo a love life, because it will only betray you. In her screenplay adaptation of Bachmann's Melina, Jelinek lets the leading lady, an author ruined by love, go up in smoke, thus transferring to the fiction on screen the import of the burning ending of Bachmann's life. For Jelinek, a close reader of psychoanalysis, there are no accidents. Every other thought passing through the recycling bin of the language in Jelinek's Die Klavierspielerin is about how original, creative, and special the subject is. Erika Kohut is a teacher at the music academy dedicated to passing of the baton from special subject to special subject. But the SM passion of pedagogy in the novel is without the outside chance of instruction. What can you impart or graduate to in a ruined language, a claptrap of stale phrases, sayings, and words of wisdom? Only someone whose language sense is damaged, only a journalist or a failed journalist, an academic, could mistakenly read the peristaltic reversal of originality as a narrative of perspectives and psychologies. In film, by contrast, perspective or point of view, ultimately that of the camera, is a given. It's true that even unoriginal language communicates, but Jelinek breaks it down into kotzbrocken that signal a metabolic impasse. Although the language fragments don't say much, if we follow Heinz' Kohut, it's clear enough that we are inside a grandiose, exhibitionistic self. But rather than calibrate the narcissism of this self, the novel keeps rewinding it around a rewounding. In the background of Kohut's essay, The big picture of aberrant narcissism, unchanneled by early maternal mirroring, belongs to the recent past of National Socialism. The suppressed but unmodified narcissistic structures become intensified as their expression is blocked. They will break through the brittle controls and will suddenly bring about, not only in individuals, but also in whole groups the unrestrained pursuit of grandiose aims and the resistanceless merger with omnipotent self-objects. I need only refer to the ruthlessly pursued ambitions of Nazi Germany and of the German population's total surrender to the will of the Führer to exemplify my meaning. What goes without saying, die Klavierspielerin shows, rebounds from the language of these individuals and whole groups. Against the horizon line that Martin Heidegger unfurled, it is not man, it is language that speaks, Jelinek added the proviso that neither man nor language speaks. Our interlocutor is language's recent past, its recycling has been the deposit of the generation before." The Austrian preoccupation with the ruination of language placed the journalist at the top of the most wanted list. But then, at least according to Karl Krauss, National Socialism cut through the mediation of the press and let the words bleed. Post Krauss, Austrian language pessimism, at least in the case of Bachmann, sought out Ludwig Wittgenstein for instruction in correcting false language. But the philosophy of the limits of language didn't help Wittgenstein when, in 1939, his friend and student used national character in conversation to make a point. Five years later, the philosopher wrote the friend in a letter, that he still wasn't over the use of that ill-gotten phrase. What's the point in teaching philosophy if it does not make you more conscientious than any journalist in the use of dangerous phrases? Like the bottom line reached by the devolution of commodities in Philip K. Dick's Ubik, to this day the recent past is not much older or more recent than the year 1939. In 1920, Freud added a long footnote to the psychopathology of everyday life that culminates in a reference to experimental psychologist Walter Poppelreuter, crediting him with offering substantiation that both words and numbers indeed trigger associations, which, according to Freud, tell the analyst about a patient's unconscious. In the original version of his 1901 study, right where the new note drops, there was a stretch of main text that speculated with Wilhelm Fleece on numbers and augury. Up the river Styx without a paddle, Freud eliminated this opening into his brother Julius's crypt, on which his same-sex friendships, notably with Fleece and then with Jung, depended and broke apart. Freud salutes Poppelreuter between a crypt and a date mark. By the 1920s, Poppelreuter had found a sidebar for his research on brain-damaged soldiers. It was the study of the fit between man and machine, the gist of the new psychotechnical direction in psychology. It must have been a hard midlife, and he didn't want to feel stuck in Bonn a new line of inquiry which took him to other cities and research facilities led to a substantial publication on the pedagogical overcoming of the inauthentic in language and thought. That we are enthralled to false thinking and false language makes us the square peg that won't fit the round hole of modern labor and learning. Poppelreuter, who always hoped to score, called his approach psychocritical. In Psychocritical Pedagogy on Overcoming False Knowledge, False Ability, False Thinking, etc., he extended, as he writes in his preface and introduction, the experimental psychological method he began applying already prior to World War I by studying Freud, Adler, Bleuler, Jung, Weyinger, Keo, Erdmann, etc., But Nietzsche was his teacher. In the last decade, we have learned to read him as a great psychologist. Poppel allows that while he cannot right away reorganize pedagogy, he can make propaganda for changes in instruction and in time can invest pedagogy with a psychocritical inflection. The model he has in mind is the success story of psychoanalysis. There isn't a neurologist around who, though he derided and cursed Freud, Adler, Jung et all, didn't over time incorporate their insights. The success lay in the way the method entered the fray in the heightened form of Heilslehre, a doctrine of healing and salvation. In his years of psychotechnical practice, he learned to appreciate the efficacy of the foreign word test administered in the course of intelligence testing. It shows that a person can use a great many words and concepts such that he has a consciousness of knowledge without, however, really possessing an exact knowledge. Homogeneity is often defined as a type of sexual aberration and the autodidact as a self-writer. But he who pulls back and admits he doesn't know the meaning of a word is not a culprit of false thinking, but on the contrary represents true thinking. Psychocritical education of the will counters the tendency to be content with near misses while carrying out tasks. All human performance, especially when in the company of others, stands under the aegis of self-promotion And self-esteem. That's why Poppelreuter objects to Eugen Bleuler's attribution of autistic thought to the schizophrenic and fantast or dreamer. Already at the start of these observations, I warned against viewing the true accomplishments as normal and, in contrast, the false accomplishments as abnormal. Biologically speaking, the reverse is the case. Poppelreuter, who in 1920 shared the placement in Freud's footnote with Bleuler, rejects the autism metaphor as pathologizing mistakes, since the fake thinking he does want to remedy is not an aberration, but the biological norm. Language pessimism means being disappointed in a fiction. Insuperable ambiguity results only when a linguistic expression is taken out of its biological situation. An immensely large component of imprecise knowledge is biologically necessary. But a person should know which knowledge must be precise and which can remain imprecise. There is language that serves science and seeks the truth, and there is language that we use as a tool for solving life's tasks. This latter strain Poppelreuter identifies as dialectical thought or combative thought, which is not the same as false thought. Just the same, if there is false cogitation in dialectical or polemical thought, then that's because in combat every means is justified, in particular the exploitation of imprecise knowledge. With the exception of the study of mathematics and the natural sciences, what crosses our minds is dialectical thought. For the practice of pedagogy today, however, Poppelreuter would like to see a skeleton of fundamental knowledge securing the main concepts, letting everything else remain cloudy. Physics must be basic knowledge, incorporated inside the soma, like the alphabet. In the classroom, there must be, then, for every branch of knowledge, two textbooks, the elementary book or skeleton key and an accompanying book of illustration. False understanding also arises from a zooming in on one meaning of a word that in fact extends through a constellation of various meanings. Poppelreuter's example here, which recurs throughout his study, is konzentration Narcissistic rage, being fit to be tied, is a kind of concentration or concentrate. Beginning in 1930, when a younger colleague, Otto Lurvenstein, was made full professor in record time, Poppelreuter succumbed to envy. While on repeated leaves of absence, pursuing his new line of psychotechnical or psychocritical research, the institute he established in Bonn for the treatment and study of brain injuries was no longer in use. But when the university handed over the building to Löwenstein for a new institute dedicated to the treatment and study of psychically abnormal children, Poppelreuter, an associate professor, immediately waged a campaign to get it back. Revenge made him join the Nazi movement, he was a social democrat beforehand. Lurvenstein was a Protestant convert, but in the biological situation of the Nazi ideology, Jewish enough. In 1933, Poppelreuter arranged for a brigade of S.A. shirts to invade the children's hospital, hand the address back to him, and drag his arch-rival in chains through the streets. But Lurvenstein was warned by phone and got away. Poppelreuter was left behind, railing and roiling. His Nazi opportunism was never enough. The ruthlessly pursued ambitions of his grandiose self were not merged with Nazi aspirations, nor was he able to surrender to Hitler as his omnipotent self-object. We are accustomed to the sorry claim that the Germans didn't know about the Nazi crimes. Poppelreuter, who studied Mein Kampf, knew what to expect and joined the Nazis to aim their violence against his rival. That already doesn't sound like he respected them. Shortly before his death in 1939, he was charged by the university and the Nazi party with alcohol abuse and outrageous calumny and intrigue during his divorce case. It wasn't until 1990, however, that an article about the euthanasia perpetrated during the Third Reich at the Children's Hospital in Bonn, which identified Poppelreuther as responsible and a Nazi, resulted in the renaming of all the awards and streets that bore his name. In 1932, Poppelreuther offered a lecture course at the University of Bonn on political psychology, based on Hitler's Mein Kampf. He turned the grandiose exhibitionism into a pamphlet published in 1934, Hitler, the Political Psychologist. The publication included a facsimile copy of a letter Hitler had sent Poppelreuther a couple of years before regarding the course offering. The letter seems a little belittling. In the pamphlet with bestseller Ambitions, the experimental psychologist recapitulated propagandistically his insights into the linguistic dimension of dialectical thought, which he more fully demarcated in the 1933 scholarly study. In Psychocritical Pedagogy, Poppelreuter argued as follows. Combat, Kampf, is also self-assertion. If someone writes a book, then he is also in the psychological situation of combat. Even the phrase, that unit of journalistic influence Austrian language pessimism singled out as Exhibit A, which is essentially not referential in content, is recommended by the very contentlessness of its words as a weapon in the Lebenskampf. In the pure fight for, with, and of words, many people connect different senses with the same word and thus engage in the combat of false against false. In the 1934 pamphlet, Poppelreuter makes big claims for Hitler's untenable coupling of national and socialism, which evacuated their separate meanings, masterfully taking Marxism out of the equation with socialism. While the official discourse of Blut und Boden was the address of the middle-brow milieu of talking heads, the bulk rate of Nazi language relied on the talk that walked the streets of Berlin before marching down the ranks of total mobilization. We owe this insight to Werner Krauss, a scholar of Romance languages and literatures, who survived his sentencing as member of the Rote Kapelle, the underground resistance group that was flushed out in 1942. Post-war, he made his academic career in the German Democratic Republic, where another philologist, Walter Klemperer, was better known for his study of the Nazi language. Like Popelreuter Krauss in On the Condition of Our Language, Über den Zustand unserer Sprache, underscores how the Nazis deployed the experience and technique of advertising campaigns. Their slogans, too, were less commands and more suggestive spots addressing the whole person. It isn't enough that a person can understand the pitch. The slogan wants him to come along and join in. The turn to advertising got around the lack of a renewal of language, which can only arrive, as happened with the French and Russian revolutions, by the force of principles. Mussolini's unprincipled slogan that all ideas are possible, meant that the ideas don't match reality, but exercise certain effects which are worthy of consideration only as means to his political ends. Advertising regulates the use of a product independently of the needs of the consumers, suggestively circumventing judgment via ubiquitous slogans which strike the attention span like bolts of lightning, riveting it to a random point. The sloganeering that was directed with the expertise of a public relations impresario to match each new situation didn't constitute a new real language. Only the slang of the foot soldiers came close. What thrilled the youth was the ice-cooled romanticism of the technological adventure. After giving salient examples of the emotine argot, Krauss must admit, what is most alienating about these sentences is that they leave an impression that cannot be denied, that they in fact evidence something authentic. In contrast to the language in countless speeches and brochures advertising the Thousand-Year Reich, this slang was free of illusion. Any teen idiom is quickly dated, but like poetry it preserves innovation in language, which otherwise is extinguished the moment it succeeds. The metaphorical argot establishes identities through the juxtaposition of known conditions. Since both remain separate in consciousness, the effect of the metaphorical turn of phrase is like that of an inside joke. The secret handshake discourse binds its native speakers within the community it actualizes. It is a language for initiates only, who are protected against an unwelcome following or understanding. The reverse image of Goebbels' Community of the Oath, this conspiratorial slang milieu of the soldiers spoke to the deracinated who have nothing more to expect from life, than the provisions provided on the journey into annihilation or survival. Although German culture was one of the central stations for the arrival of the teenage already in the 18th century, and the teen fan fluidum and continuity shot is in our faces when we watch the Nazi movement getting into pictures, a teen culture of innovation appears spectacularly missing from the post-war German language world. D.W. Winnicott's passing thought that Nazi Germany pitched and tossed teen turbulence by elevating youth to the status of superego elucidates this genealogical conundrum. We midlifers and expiration-dated parents, Winnicott admits in 1964, might also be tempted in the face of teen acting out to try out the holding cell of a total solution. Taken out of the Hamletian context of the death wish and its rebound as haunting and suicidality, however, the pacified teen age forgoes the important factor of immaturity, the inoculative proximity passing through adolescence to a more fixated psychopathic tendency, the near-miss that gives the teen creative license." The in-group members sent a super-ego to the front of the line of total war mobilization. In time, could not but fall short of innovation. While it was happening, however, the lingo could still be used in memoriam of the cryptolects, new start and art in teenage slang. Is rasseln die Ketten a line from Franz Schubert's Im Dorfe? which we hear like a tagline sung often enough in Hanukkah's movie, La Pianiste, to memorize it, advertises to be sure the idyll at breaking point of Erika's own self-isolation, but also reaches back to a Nazi marching ballad. The text that Norbert Schulze set to music in 1941 is attributed to an unknown foot soldier in the Afrika Korps. »Es rasseln die Ketten«, the line floating up from the sleeping village, waking up in earshot of the barking-chained dogs, refers in the marching song to the clanking mobility of tanks and weds a new spirit of animism to technologization. Mickey Mouse, Benjamin writes in 1935, walks down this aisle to model a new barbarism. In Die Klavierspielerin, there is a reference lodged between Schubert and Schumann to the other Frankfurt schooler. Adorno's 1928 Schubert essay reads in the depraved afterlife of the composer's music, its recycling in medleys, a constellation disclosing the music's truth and history. For the Adorno of notes on Kafka, as in the language of Jelinek's novel, such upbeat messages are bottled up without outlet because what happened to Imdolphe in 1941 doesn't stay there. In light of the genealogy of the German teenage, we recognize over and against any timeless linguistic limits that it is a limitation placed on the German language by its recent past that Jelinek's novel indwells. Instrumentalized by the Nazis as the high vantage point of their movement, the age of innovation was decontextualized and neutralized, in the end junked like another contraband part and portrait of the Third Reich. In 1991, during the run of the reconstructed degenerate art exhibition at LACMA in California, high school students on a class trip often didn't advance beyond the introductory gallery where clips from Riefenstahl movies were shown for the historical record. It takes one to know one, even when the other one hails from a condemned past. Heinz Kohut explores as analog to narcissistic rage the anger of the aphasic patient when unable to solve a simple problem. His rage is due to the fact that he is suddenly not in control of his own thought processes, of a function people consider to be most intimately their own, i.e. as a part of the self. Because the unseeable thought processes coincide with our very self, a defect in the realm of our mental functions is experienced as loss of self." Anyone can make a slip of the tongue, but when it happens in public, our immediate tendency is to accept its unconscious significance right away, while forever denying any loss of control. Who cares what unconscious wish or fantasy stands revealed by the sudden incapacity to find the right word? It is the exposure of the lack of omnipotence in the area of one's own mind that can make us react with a full spectrum of our emotions, controlledly but not necessarily restrainedly. Not guilt, then, but shame and rage are felt over a defect in the realm of the omnipotent and omniscient grandiose self. Our inability upon making a lapsus in public to admit to a breach in our omnipotence as responsible for false language and false thought which is why Poppelreuter guides his test subjects toward acceptance of their biological limits in language before instructing them in how to improve their performance. Ulrike Ottinger intervened in the impasse that die Glavierspielerin indwells when she directed the premiere of Jelleneck's play Begierde und Fahrerlaubnis, Desire and Driving License. The text is a pornography that gets a rise out of the prefab language Jelinek lifted from ready-made novels of arousal. Ottingo projected the text on a backdrop screen, while in the foreground she directed a deaf-mute actress in conveying the phrases in official sign language. As seen on American TV in the corner of the evening news, This language of the deaf is a gestural display that appears bludgeoned by the accompanying nonverbal communication of recognizable sentiment. But what appears as eccentric and overly emotional is in the service of disambiguation and communication. To the initiated, every raised eyebrow or tilt of the head communicates meaning unambiguously. Otinga staged the play of Jelenic's language between the writing on the back wall and the monologue performance in the foreground imparting meaning, context, and affect in the visible language of signing. Denis Diderot, who reflected on what language shows in the theater, reflections that contributed to the founding of an alternate communication for and with the deaf, took inspiration from a heightening of his appreciation of the acting on stage when he blocked up his ears. Isabelle Huppert's performance in La Pianiste is deaf to language pessimism and resolutely communicates the bare-bones love story among the manifest ruins of a grandiose exhibitionistic self affect which is more discreetly lodged in writing can be seen and heard right away. Isabel makes a clearing in the novel's thicket of wooden language for shame and rage to be sure, but also for love. What was about of psychotic jealousy in Jelinek's novel becomes in La pianiste the opening act that leads to a new sense of the ending. In die Klavierspielerin it's just another hot young girl, Walter Klemera, Erika's student, flirts with, who takes the blast of her envy. On screen, her victim is one of her promising students, but modest-looking and symptomatizing the handicap of a mother's insatiable aspirations, like the stage fright Walter helps the girl get past. By being kind to Erika's young double, Walter steps on the crack in the maternal mirroring. The rest is cutting, but that, too, is the signature of doubling. Erika administers on her own person self-soothing techniques of cutting, superintending the operation with a pocket mirror. Isabelle overreads this borderline activity as a reference to actionism, the Viennese art movement. I don't know that Hanukkah would have made this overvaluation, but the film goes with it. Like the significance of the letter in the novel, the cut on screen would be then the internal simulacrum of the art of cinema. Packing for her evening of standing in for her injured double, Erika drops a kitchen knife into her bag. She stays behind in the lobby while the audience gathers in the hall. After Valta shows up just in time, embedded within an in-group of fellow students, and enters the auditorium, Isabel, alone in the foyer, turns the knife against herself, making a safe cut. There are no witnesses. What she cannot hide is that she's a no-show at the concert. Isabel puts the knife point as period at the end of her sentencing before the mirror. We watch her leave the concert hall behind, an assemblage of reflecting panes or shards of glass. At the knife-point of blood, Isabel cuts away from love and life to enter the Lichtung or clearing, not of TV, it's analog in Heidegger, but of art cinema. The command cut marks the end of the take of a scene during principal photography but cut in the post-production setting of editing, marks a transition. What's cumbersome about the ideology of narcissistic personality disorder and Kohut's system is elegantly resolved by Winnicott with his theory of the transitional object. His account of how the vulnerability of our narcissism must be anchored in a safe harbor consolidates two psychoanalytic approaches to understanding why there is art and culture. First, there is sublimation, the big misunderstood, which in the big picture saves from sexual repression the energy it reserves for cultural and scientific pursuits. But in everyday life, and this is the focus of Winnicott's reinterpretation of sublimation in the setting of the transitional object, sublimation offers respite from the ongoing pressures of sexualization on the brink of repression. Second, there is the psychoanalytic poetics of the daydream. The social relation of art shall overcome the privacy and privation of adolescent daydreaming, rescuing omnipotence or creativity from its staging area in low narcissistic wishing, which is inartistic, even antisocial, and always embarrassing. The affirmation of communication as art in Oettinger's Direction of Begird und Vererlaubnis is possible because in childhood we are given a rest from the ongoing effort to balance inner and outer worlds. It's the break we get when Mother gives us a transitional object, which is not the placeholder for an object relation. Through the relationship to the transitional object itself, we are able to receive the data of experience, beginning with what the mother and mother tongue bestow on us as our own creation, our own creativity. In La Pianiste, when Isabelle comes home late after stalking copulating couples in the drive-in movie theater, the mother reproaches her daughter with the news that her father has just passed away. It is an emotional moment, and their disconnection now puts through their connection. The second week of shooting coincided with the death of Jelinek's mother. Although the early introduction of the transitional object readily miscarries, mourning can go back there and reenact and retrieve it. When Isabelle discusses the foregrounding of music in La Pianiste, arguing that music and cinema are akin, she says that when listening to music, you feel what you can't express with words. I would add that the specific emotional situation that music brings back refers to moments in the past when the expression of the feeling was wanting and the words withheld. In mourning, we go back to the times we shared with the departed not only to bid farewell within the memorial architecture, but to catch up with an affection deficit and flash on the words We didn't use to express what we felt." The resolution of Jelinek's experiments with the unoriginality of language arrived with her masterpiece, Die Kinder der Toten. Here the recycling of the recent past in the German language communicates for the deaf, I mean the dead. Zombies flourish amidst the Bildung blocks of received ideas and overused words of wisdom, thrilling to and slurping up the cant of proverbial expression and unforgettable taglines. The German language that once confounded Yellenek was at least, at last, kinder to the dead.